of being here this morning, especially if you're a first-time guest here. Uh, really excited that you're here with us. Uh, this is our first week here, as we mentioned earlier. And my name is uh, Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Mike, unfortunately, is not here with us. This. He would have loved to be here. Uh, he actually worked very hard for us to get into this space. So if you guys get a chance to see Mike later on in the week, just let him know how much we appreciate uh, the amount of work that went into this. And so um, we are in the midst of a series called Why Jesus? And, uh, oh, sorry, before I forget, um, parents, uh, let me get this right. So after service, parents, grab your children, right? Okay, all right, just want to make sure, okay? Um, I didn't want to miss that announcement. So after, after the service, parents, grab your children. Uh, it's like in the K Club because we're so close. Kids just kind of wander back into the room. If you can grab your kids and then bring them back here after the service, that would be fantastic. So uh, as I was saying, we're going through a series called Why Jesus, and uh, it's a chance for us to not just talk about the person of Jesus, but it's a chance for us to really understand that, you know, in the life of Jesus is not just a prophet, is not just a teacher, he's just not a savior and a lord, even though that's how we revere him, that he's so much more than that. There's some intricacies about who Jesus is that we should pay attention to. Now, frankly, uh, for many of us, uh, how many of you guys have friends, coworkers, families who you, you think, as far as you can tell, have an off view of Jesus? Like, so you know, yeah. So majority of you guys, you know somebody who maybe is looking at Jesus from what you would consider a skewed pers perspective. And so what we're trying to do over the next couple of weeks is take this time to really walk through what is the book of Hebrews has to say, um, have to say about the person of Jesus. And so we're taking uh, this time up until April 5th, which will be Easter, uh, and we're asking different why and how questions about Jesus. So this morning, we're actually asking two main questions. Uh, the two questions are, why did Jesus partake in flesh and blood? Why did he become man like us? And then secondly is, how does looking at Jesus' humanity help us overcome temptation? All right, so trying to take a really practical outlook as to why was Jesus the Son of God and how does that actually practically help me overcome day-to-day -day temptation, all right? So maybe the connection's not immediate, but we'll, we'll get through it. So there's some in the text that we read earlier. Uh, there's some uh, phrases in the text that I just want to pull out because I think it's really key for us to understand why Jesus came, uh, why the Son of God came and became human, flesh and blood. Uh, and so Hebrews says that since therefore the children, which is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. And then later it says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He sympathizes with our weakness, but in every respect has been tempted as we are. All right, so it's making a lot of claims that Jesus is just the same way as you are. In his human nature, he is very much the same way as you and I. Why is that important? Why did that happen? And how does knowing that help us overcome temptation in our lives? When I say the word temptation, what, what conjures up in your mind? Like, what does temptation conjure up for you? Okay, sin, that's an obvious, okay, great. What else? When you, when you hear the word temptation, what is it? Feelings, 
Okay, all right. So a lot of behavior-oriented ideas. Okay, what else? Any other thoughts? Claire. An opportunity to choose. All right. Yeah. Yeah, opportunity to choose. I want us for a, a quick second this morning, before we move forward, is I want to... I want you to identify what you think is your largest temptation in your life. All right. Think for a quick second. Is it a behavior? Is it a food? Is it an attitude? All right. I want you to capture that thought real quick, and we'll get back to it. All right. So uh, we're going to walk through a couple of questions and uh, look at why. Why did the Son of God partake in flesh and blood? Firstly, we, we can't let go of the fact that the Trinity is the way that we think about God. The God has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus was born, he had already, already existed. So we talked about that last week, that Jesus has been eternally existing since the beginning of time. He's the creator. According to the Old Testament, he was present as well in the Old Testament. Uh, the, Son of God, the Son of God was not always human. All right. The Son of God was not always human. He became human in Jesus. All right. Philippians chapter 2 says this, and this is the clue that we see from Philippians chapter 2, that he was in the form of God. We have that? Yeah, we got that up there, right? He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, to cling on to. He didn't, he didn't think that he needed to cling on to uh, the equality of being God. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born, being born in the likeness of man. All right. So that as of 2015, as of 2015, the Son of God is still human. Not prior to 2,000 years ago, but up until now and for eternity future, that the Son of Man or Son of God will continue to be human, just like us. Uh, that's what will make the new heavens and the new earth so fantastic, is that the Son of Man will be present around, hanging around just like us. He's not this disembodied spirit uh, just floating around in other places. Here, here's why this happened. Why did the Son of God, who is existent from eternity past, why did he come down, born to be exactly like us? The Father and Son have been in a perfect relationship empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's always been perfect, fantastic relationship. As a matter of fact, the, the best family that ever existed, right? The father wants more children like his son. He wants more children, more offspring like his only son. So he creates mankind made in the likeness of himself. This is out of the book of Genesis. And then he shapes into the form of what one day will be the Son of God, but right now is only foreshadowing. Adam was the foreshadow of who the Son of God was going to be. All right. Is that too deep? Do we need to, let me, we'll say it again. Adam was a foreshadow of what one day the Son of God would become. Is that register? Good. All right. This is important because later when the Son of God becomes human, he is legitimizing our adoption. 
So when Jesus becomes Jesus, when the Son of God becomes Jesus, he is legitimizing us. He, he's, he's actually saying, yes, you are legitimate. All right, it wasn't, um, the Son of God becoming Jesus was never a plan B. All right, the birth of Jesus as the way that we celebrate it seems like, oh, it's such a great plan. Uh, God is going to save the world and uh, he's doing it by coming to be with us. That, in fact, is not a plan B. That was always the plan. God's heart was always to have his son walk around among us. And so when he came, it legitimized the fact that you and I were created. So how was he flesh and blood like us? There are three areas that I'm going to hit real quick that Jesus was flesh and blood just like us. All right. So all throughout scripture, we see that Jesus ate, he slept, he got tired, he rested, he lived with the physical restrictions. All right. Uh, we can pretty much guarantee that he used the bathroom, uh, he got sick, he took medicine as needed, he watched his diet. Have you ever thought of Jesus in that way? He's like, God, oh, no, I gotta stay away from the pork. Wait, of course I gotta stay away from the pork, but I'm gonna stay away from all these other foods, right? So, uh, additionally, there's no doubt that he felt physical pain. He got hurt, he bled, he was dizzy, he could black out, just like you and I. There isn't any physical joy, any physical pain that we feel that Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't feel. This also meant, like you and me, that the Son of God could die. In his mind, all right, so that's body. In his mind, Jesus also had a mind. He had a thought life. He would sit in a room just like you are, and he would think thoughts about people, just like you do. He has a rationality. He, there, there were ways in which he thought that was unique to him. He had a personality. He didn't know the answers to everything at birth. And this is where I think some people are like, oh, you're preaching heresy. Of course, when he was an infant, he knew everything, right? Uh, but the Bible is pretty clear that in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature. All right. Jesus never sinned but it didn't mean that he never made mistakes. This is where I, I might get in trouble. This is where I might get an email from people later. Think about this. Is it possible that Jesus made mistakes? So his, his father, his early father was Joseph, who was a carpenter, right? And so I'm guessing if he, you know, the Bible describes Jesus as having that trade for most of his adult life. I'm guessing that the first time he picked up a hammer, okay, now he could have been the most skilled, like, you know, 12-year-old there was in Palestine in that, in that century. But when Jesus picked up a hammer, that it was not completely intuitive for him to automatically know how to build a house, okay? He might have his thumbs a couple of times, all right? There's a sense in which Jesus had to learn a skill, just like you and I have to learn skills. It doesn't mean that he sinned in his mistakes, right? But just as he learned from Joseph and Mary, and you learned from your parents or your mentors, he had to learn as well. And this also means that, like you and me, the Son of God learned from mistakes and failure. I kind of like the idea that Jesus made mistakes and failures. 
Not that he ever did anything intentionally to hurt people, but in his human flesh, he was restricted. As a matter of fact, it says that the only way that he knew things wasn't that it was like a database that was downloaded in him. But it was a daily experiencing hearing God, and that's, that was his form of knowing, all right? And then thirdly is this, that he, like you and I, had spirit, has soul. Jesus has a personality. You ever think about the personality that Jesus might have had? You think he was a jokester? You think he was, like, serious? I grew up thinking Jesus was really serious, like, just really, like, let's get, get the job done. Uh, Jesus had a side of him that was soft, a side of him that was tender. He had compassion. He showed anger. He had exuberant joy. He also worried. He was also tempted to fear, tempted to be anxious. There was even a moment in which he felt extremely abandoned even by his own father. Jesus felt darkness. He felt dismay. And when he was betrayed and abandoned by those that were closest to him, he felt the same thing that you and I would have felt if we were abandoned. Loneliness and disappointment. This is a part of the nature of Jesus and his humanity. Many of us, when we think about Jesus in this way, how many of you like to think of Jesus in this way? We don't. We like to, for Jesus to be a superhero. As a matter of fact, like name your favorite mentor in your mind and then get a picture of that person crying, weeping, maybe using the bathroom. And for some reason, it just doesn't like fit in our minds sometimes that our mentor, our heroes, our are the ones that we look up to would actually have those kinds of behaviors and those things in their lives. Jesus was like us in every single way, with one caveat, that every time he heard God the Father, he never departed from God's will. So because of that, he never sinned. As a matter of fact, when Jesus did miracles, and you guys are really giving me a hard time with this like over here and over here, <laughs> Next week, let's, let's all bring it right here, if we can, next week. That Jesus, as he walked around, he did miracles. It wasn't like he had a loaded finger and he pointed at people and people were healed. Jesus was a conduit. So that when healing came, it wasn't because it came out of Jesus' own physical power. He was a conduit in which God the Father spoke to him. And in faith, he believed that God, the Father, could release healing onto people. The source and the power of Jesus' healing was not intrinsic to his flesh, his nature. He had left that, it says in Philippians chapter 2, right? He left those things behind. And so he walked around just like you and me. In some ways, Jesus says, you guys, you will do greater things than I can. You, don't, you, you only have the same limitations that Jesus has. That's all. You're only limited in the same way that Jesus was limited. He walked around so obedient that in the moments in which God was speaking to him and he knew that power would flow, that healing would flow, he took a step of faith. And guess what? Healing did happen. He has everything that you have. You have everything that he has. 
So it says this in verse 17, <clears throat> that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, we might, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. So he had to be, be made like us so that he could be a high priest. And let me explain that. Uh, because Jesus is the son of God, but also because he's human being experiencing every joy and every grief, that makes him a great high priest. Because in the Old Testament, which Hebrews is only drawing mainly from the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between y'all folks and God. And so the high priest would offer sacrifices for repentance, forgiveness on behalf of the people. And so he would wear his garb. He would enter into the temple, which was considered the holy presence of God. And before he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, he had to offer a sacrifice on his own behalf because he had his own sins. He needed repentance. He needed forgiveness. And so what happens was that the reason why God instituted the sacrificial system wasn't because he was all about rituals or religion, but he needed to give a tangible picture to his people that sin points to death, not to life. Sin is a pointer to death. And so because of our sins, the priest offers the sacrifice, lays it down on the, perfect, we have an altar here, uh, lays it down on the altar and slays the animal, reminding the people our sin leads to death. That was a placeholder. Because the Old Testament is also clear that there was one that was coming to get rid of this system, right? So it was, it was a chance to put in place a placeholder for somebody who would come and substitute that sacrifice, right? And so here comes Jesus. And Hebrews is saying that he is not just the high priest, but because he was sinless, he is the great high priest. That, as a matter of fact, what happens is that the placeholder in which the animal laid on was reserved for him. So the priest was not only the one offering sacrifices, but in Jesus' case, he himself became the sacrifice. Um, propitiation is a very, like, old word that we don't use anymore. But the word propitiate just means to make it pleasing. And so in Jesus' death, that, that made the people pleasing, or that made, uh, uh, that made us pleasing to God again. Sin makes us offensive. Sacrifice makes us pleasing to God. And so the word, when it says that we, uh, he uh, became the propitiation for our sins, means that when God looks at us, he is now well-pleased. He's got no agenda when he looks at you. He's got heart, and he's got a desire, and he's got will for you, but he's got no condemnation for us. He's pleased in you. He loves you, not because of what you've done, but because of the great high priest, right? Let me give you an illustration to, to drive this home a little bit more. Uh, my dad, who um, you would never guess my dad's name. Could you guess? You would think it'd be something like a Chang or a, a Lee or something. <laughs> My dad's name is Ed. He's <laughs> uh, actually at work, they call him Eddie, which is really weird for me. Um, so it wasn't always Ed. It was actually uh, Yagia uh, growing up. 
And so uh, my mom and dad got married um, back in uh, 71, maybe 69, something like that. So my dad was uh, involved in the war in Laos. This is uh, um, back in the early 70s. And he was a radio operator. So what would happen was the choppers would fly him around and he would uh, end up either fixing communication lines or he would decipher code and messages and stuff like that, right? Um, I always thought that he was on the front lines like shooting people, but he was kind of more of a, a behind the scenes guy. And so one morning, he was given an assignment. He had to get on the chopper, and he was going to fly in and do some, uh, um, some fixing uh, communication lines. And so another friend of his who happened to be Yaya also, had the same exact name as my dad, first and last, uh, said, hey, you stay behind. I'll take, this, I'll take this run. And so they worked it out, and it was no big deal. And so my dad stayed behind, and the other Yaya went in his place into the chopper. And so they went flying, and unfortunately, uh, there were anti-aircraft uh, fire. And so they, they shot down the, uh, the chopper. Everybody died. Uh, there were no survivors. So before, um, there was so much confusion, my dad says, before word could get back, um, uh, things had already spread that uh, the chopper went down, and Yahya had died. And that went back to my mom's village. And so my dad was not able to get back there on time. And so for a few days, my mom was like, I've lost my husband, right? And so she's freaking out and she's crying. My, my dad gets back to the village, and you can, you can only imagine the relief that was on my mom's face when she saw my dad, right? Like, are you a ghost? Um, she was so relieved. But there was somebody who was just like my dad, who stepped into his place. And his death means life for my dad. That Jesus was made just like us. That his death means life for us. The word picture that Hebrews is painting for us is this. That sin leads us to a sacrificial altar. God institutes a system in which when we sacrifice, there's a placeholder that's reminding us sin points to death. But there's a placeholder that will atone for that. And then here comes Jesus, the great high priest. He puts, he takes off his garb, puts on our garb. And because he's the son of God, and also because he's fully human, he climbs on the altar so that we don't have to. His death means our life. All right. So that's the understanding of Jesus, the son of God, become man in the flesh. He did it on our behalf. He did it in order to adopt us, to legitimize our relationship with God. Now, the question is, how does that help me in my temptation? How does knowing that help me in my temptation? Ultimately, our temptations are not about our behaviors. Our temptations are about our desires. What do you desire most? Because that will tempt you the most. Many of us are like, I don't, you, I don't know everybody in here. Many of you have walked into this room with high levels of anxiety, high levels of stress, high levels of worry. Maybe you can't correlate your struggles with lust into something that you actually desire. Maybe you can't correlate your anxiety with something that you actually desire. But at the end of the day, any kind of temptation is actually not just an issue of behavior, but it's what do you really want in your heart? 
There needs to be uh, an examination of what is our motive. And in some ways, temptation is a very helpful thing. Temptation is very helpful. Because if you can overcome temptation, it proves the genuineness of who you are. Let me give you an illustration for that. Um, I guess in some ways I'm kind of putting myself on the altar now. Because as a pastor, uh, as somebody in Christian ministry, uh, our temptations come in a couple of different forms, uh, not too different from yours. Uh, you guys who are working in, you know, different environments, you can definitely relate to our temptations. But in the area of success and in the area of outward holiness, pastors struggle quite a bit with that. But you're not shocked to hear that, right? Of course not. So that when we sit down, success to me as a pastor, when I sit down, is being able to give good counseling from the Bible. That's success. And so that later when you come back, and so Steve, Steve Wu and I meet every Wednesday for uh, bacon and eggs and among other things. Um, success for me is Stephen being able to say to me, hey, you know the thing that we talked about last week? It really helped me this week, right? And so that's not a temptation. That's actually great. The temptation comes when I expect that to happen in every relationship that I have in this church. That every conversation has to be a, a, an opportunity for you to change your life. And so that when you come back to me and you say, hey, the conversation we had, fantastic. It really it was spot on. Really, really helped me. And it makes me feel good. In some ways, it boosts up my pride. I love it when you guys do that. I love it when I get messages saying, you're a fantastic pastor. Man, great. The best one I've ever had, you know. Uh, or you come back and you say things that, you know, flatter. Like, this is very helpful to me because in some ways, uh, my love language, if you believe in that stuff, is words of affirmation. So it's very helpful to me when somebody says, good job, that sermon was great. Um, the temptation is this. But I believe you. I believe everything that you say. I believe that I am saving Stephen Wu from imminent disaster. <laughs> I believe that because of my vision and leadership, that we are doing something great in the city. And even though that's what we want, the temptation is pride, that success would lead to pride. And in some ways, that makes me less accessible to people because now I'm having to put forth an image which goes into the second temptation, is that the, the, the temptation to have to always be on. Like I just, like I can never yell at my kids, I can never yell at my wife, and so it doesn't matter what I share with you guys, if I, I wanna, even if I don't feel it inside, I have to strive and strive to try to put it out there for you guys. And so it's very tempting, it's very tempting to live that way, to not share junk. It's very tempting to just pretend that, oh, yeah, everything's okay. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, when you made that comment, oh, it didn't hurt me. No, of course not, right? Or when, uh, when somebody, when some commitment fell through, oh, yeah, don't free. You know what? I'm so godly. Like, no big deal, right? Like my kids, I've never yelled at, right? Although I know you guys don't have those expectations of me. The temptation is to live in a way in which you should, right? So what happens is that it's easy to spin a lot of, like, advice up here about holiness and, and repentance and forgiveness and then live way below that bar. The temptation is very real, very real. Linda will tell you some things if you wanted to know. <laughs> 
And so what happens is that every day, every day, every, if not eight times a day, at least three to four times a day, it's God, don't let me go to that place. Don't let me be a place where I have to pretend. Let's leave a body life groups. There are times when I wish you guys didn't come over so I could just hang out with my family. <laughs> Brandon is like, hey, man, I've been trying to tell you that. <laughs> Why do you still want me to come over, right? But I pray myself to, in this place where I'm like, God, help me drift away from the temptation of pride. Can I tell you something? You guys know nothing about our denomination, right? You guys, know, like, you guys don't even know we have a denomination. We belong to this denomination called Canadian National Baptist Convention, right? So we've been put on this magazine. I don't, I don't know if anybody's seen it. But literally, this magazine has gone into tens and thousands of thousands of people's homes. And so my inbox is flooded with messages from people saying, whoa, fantastic job in Toronto. Like, we heard that, like, there are no Christians in Toronto. We're like, where are you getting this information? Uh, and so, you know, we're praying for you. Man, we know the great things are going to happen. And so, like, literally, right now, if you were to go to our denominations website, <clears throat> which in the States is much larger here in Canada, uh, like my face is plastered with red pants on. You guys know those, those red pants. Um, what about that, like, you know, should I not like? <laughs> the temptation to drift there is very real, even though in your minds, I'm just a goofball, really, and not, not the person that I think I am. You see the temptation, though? There's a disconnect. And so it's what I, what, what I have to do, and I don't know if you, you have to, if you relate to this anyway, but what I have to do is I have to pray myself down. <laughs> in this category, and in this category, I have to pray myself up. And so I'm constantly praying, oh, God, you know, just keep me low. Oh, God, help me. Just help me to genuinely be holy. Help me when I say to people, I'm going to pray for you, that I really do pray. Like, help me in this category, God, please. Because I don't want for once to stand in front of people and not be genuine. So this temptation to be another person that I'm really not, but to, to know that there's standards and all that stuff, forces me to pray. And that prayer brings me to a more genuine place. I may not win every battle in the midst of that. I may slip and fall and like, yes, yeah, yeah, good job. Or over here, I may just be like, ah, oh, hey, Jimson, I've been praying for you all week, buddy. Praying for that leg, man. Yeah. And when I've only prayed twice, I've prayed twice, but not all week. <laughs> um, I'm less tempted to do that. I pray myself into a genuine place. I've overcome temptation, not by white knuckling it, but in prayer and in a way that brings a genuine change of heart. Thomas Kempis um, uh, says that uh, uh, temptation develops first in the mind. He gives six ways in which temptation develops. First, it's a simple thought, and then it becomes an imagination that's embellished, or our imagination embellishes it. Oh, that looks good. Oh, yeah, I must have it. And the embellishment makes it look even more attractive. Oh, that's way better than the other things. It becomes so desirable. Fifthly, suddenly, there's a, there's a, there's a power behind it that's drawing us to it. And then sixthly, we relish in it. You relish in the delight. And Thomas Kempis says that in the ways in which we are tempted, it starts here. Here's a tweetable. 
I think the greatest mission field is fought here. This is where the battle is fought, right here. It's in our mind. It's in our desires. It's in what is the heaviest thing that you're holding on to. That thing at the end of the day will help you to either to win the battle or lose the battle. Um, When I was cutting my teeth on ministry uh, as a college and young adults pastor, and I was working through young people with, you know, whatever life issues. So they would come in and they would say, I struggle with loneliness and singleness. And I would say, well, clever me, so did Jesus. Jesus was single, right? I've learned quickly with some of you guys that that line doesn't work. Uh, uh, if somebody came in with uh, anxiety, I'm feeling anxiety, and I would say, you know what? Jesus worried, too. Uh, that he, he, he also worried. Uh, so people would come in and say, my finances, my future, like it's in shambles. I don't know what to do. And I'd say to them, you know, Jesus didn't have much, and yet he was able to accomplish everything that God called him to do. And I would get these stares at times, right? Sometimes it would work, and people would feel like, you know, there was some level of, like, you know, uh, reprieve. But I would get stares at times. I've gotten stares from some of you at times that says, are you stupid? Like, I can't compete with Jesus. I am not Jesus. <laughs> like, I, there's no way I can behave the way that Jesus did. But that's the point of overcoming temptation is that not that you have to be like Jesus, but in that Jesus became like you to overcome your temptations. There's a difference. Religion says if you curve your behavior, you will please God. The gospel says if you cling to Jesus, God is well pleased. That is the only way we could ever prescribe overcoming temptation. I can't start with the six steps to better living or to, uh, you know, white knuckling, whatever it is that we, we're struggling with. There's this constant having to get back to this place in which is Jesus the desire? Is Jesus the desire of my heart? Jesus' life story as a human being is not just a role model example for us. He's not just living a life for us to learn how to live. Although, 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 we would do do very well to live our life modeled after Jesus. But Jesus lives in a way in which he's trying to capture our heart and our imagination. You see, when you look at Jesus and his humanity, that everything he did was out of love. It was out of obedience. It was out of sacrifice. It was out of, like, kindness towards others. It was out of complete and a complete commitment towards God's will. That was his life story. And this was a devoted man to God the Father. And his life wasn't meant for you to copy necessarily. He was meant to win your emotions over. He was meant to be the heaviest thing in your life to anchor you. And so that when temptations did come, you would cling to him. And not trying to figure out the next five steps to overcome anxiety, which I can share with you. I have the books, by the way. But if you don't cling to Jesus, the behaviors don't fix the desires. If the desires aren't fixed, are you really overcoming, overcoming anything anyways? There are two stories from Jesus' life that I want to end our time with because I think they're very crucial for us. Uh, in a lot of ways. We're going to look at Jesus struggling in two different scenarios, uh, overcoming temptation. 
I'm tempted to, to look at Jesus' life. I'm going to have it outlined up here. You're going to be tempted to say, oh, let me write this down. Let me act the way that Jesus acted. All right. But I outline it in a way because not, I don't only want you to, like, you know, get great tips from Jesus on how to overcome temptation. But I want you to internalize what he's doing for you in these two scenarios. The first one I call it the external temptation. is the temptation of the devil. Hebrews said that Jesus destroyed the power of the devil. Jesus is in the desert. The devil comes to tempt him. This temptation is about power. It's about uh, success. And so the question is, Jesus, how did you overcome temptations of the devil in your humanity? Number one, you maintain identity as God's child, fully secure and accepted. Know that's where the accuser attacks the most. And before Jesus was brought into the desert to be tempted, God proclaimed over him, this is my son whom I loved and am well pleased. The desert was a chance for him to live into that. Secondly, be led by God's spirit. You have built-in weakness. You need the power of the spirit to discern the Father's voice. You have built-in weakness. You need the spirit to lead you. The passage in Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 5 says that Jesus was led, sorry, Matthew 3, Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit. Number three is equip yourself with the truth of God's word so that you immediately know truth from lie. Condition your neural pathways by meditating on God's truth that when the accuser attempts your mind or attempts you, your mind can readily redirect lies. Like, you, you literally have to condition your mind so that when the temptations come, there's a direct, like, in and out effect. You notice that when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, every time the devil comes up with something, he says, ah, yeah, right, but the word of God says this, right? And then fourthly is this, that remember the power of the devil was destroyed on the cross. Don't let his bark scare you. Nothing can be used against you in Christ. If you are dealing with shame this morning because you could struggle highly with some kind of sin or temptation. I want to let you know this, that because of the power of the cross, you don't have to live in shame. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt we've incurred. Jesus took that on the cross. Shame is not imposed onto you. So it takes us to the second kind of lie. It's an internal temptation. It's a temptation in the garden that we see Jesus uh, the question is, Jesus, how did you overcome the temptation of the flesh or the self in your humanity? This is different from the devil's temptation because the devil's temptation is external. There's an accuser. There are other forces, other people telling you what to do. The internal one is the one that says, oh, I just want to give up. I can't keep going like this. Jesus would say, never walk alone in your darkest moments. Have people around you even when you don't want them or think you need them. Jesus had Peter, James, and John really close to him in the moment in which the Bible described as Jesus being filled with sorrow to the point of death. James, Peter, John, real close. Number two, share your honest emotions with them. Tell them exactly what you need for them. Jesus was not being very nice that evening with, with the disciples, but he was being honest with them. He said, guys, why are you falling asleep? Not you guys in my sermon, but like to Peter, James, and John, why are you falling asleep? I need you. He's very honest with his emotions. You can say to somebody, hey, I'm dying. Why aren't you calling me regularly? 
uh, be honest with God about desires and disagreements. There comes a point when Jesus says, does this have to be the way? God can handle that. Truth be told, in my last two years in this city, I've prayed that prayer a few times. God, does it have to be here? This is way too hard. Our first five months in Toronto, we had no, there was no you, okay? There was no you. It was us, Missy, and Mike hanging out. There were moments when it was like, God, if this is going to be it, I can't do this. You have moments like that. You had a moment like that this week. You could say to God, I don't think I can do this. But fourthly, you have to start with an early decision that no matter what, you'll submit to God's will. It's important to be honest with how you feel. But you have to first come to a place where you say, no matter what, God, if I have to give that up, if this comes and I have to choose this, I'm going to go with this. But I just want to let you know this is how I feel about it. God's okay with that. This is Jesus praying on the rock in that way. Lastly is this. Um, be persistent in correcting emotions to line up with God's will. Because I know that in the midst of temptation, you don't feel like for those of us who struggle with, let's say, visual temptation, I know that in the moment in which you're caught visually by something, that you don't feel like turning away. I get that. Or in the midst of having an attitude about someone or somebody, and those feelings start to ash out at somebody, or you want to just feel disappointed in somebody. You have to be persistent in trying to correct your emotions through prayer. See, you may have heard God, but you need a lot of prayer to trust God. How many times did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane before he got up and did his thing? Get this picture. Jesus, the Son of Man, prays, God, can you take this away from me? Sorry, son. Goes back. All right. Let's try it again. Father, one more time. If it's possible, could, could you take this away from me? No, son, sorry. No wonder he's yelling at his disciples, right? He's not getting his way, right? Disciples are sleeping. The father's not budging. Uh, comes back a third time. Comes back a third time. He's not being disobedient at this point. He's being honest. I don't know if, if I can do this, but if this is what you want, I'll do it. And the Bible doesn't say, but you kind of feel like God says, okay, then do it. Sometimes we have to spend a lot of prayer time in the trusting, because you know you've heard, you know you've heard, but you have to pray your emotions to line up with God's will and move forward in obedience. Um, my biggest struggle is not anger or lust or those kinds of temptations. Uh, although those are present in my life, I'd be the first to admit that I am, you know, I struggle with every issue that you can even name. My biggest struggle is perseverance. That more times than often, I would prefer to give up. I would just prefer to just quit. I've never ever wanted to quit on my kids, so feel confident. I don't, I don't want to ruin your future, Justin. Uh, my dad wanted to quit on me. When I was, no. I've wanted to quit jobs. I've wanted to sometimes, in heated moments, wanted to quit relationships. 
uh, not recently, this is in the first two years of marriage, felt like quitting. Love you guys. There are moments when I've wanted to quit on you. There have been very few weeks in which I've walked around and I didn't want to quit on myself. And I feel like I spent a lot of time praying up, praying this pride down and praying up the holiness quotient so it would be higher. So my moments with God the Father in which I'm struggling with the temptation of quit or the temptation of something else, that I could at least get to a place where I don't have to feel 100% like I'm holy now, making all the right decisions, but I get to this place in which I'm okay, but I can trust you again. It's not about behavior. It's about desire and motive. And you can only get to that place if you're clinging to the person, to the humanity of Jesus. You cannot get to that place if you read self-help books. You may be able to stop doing X, Y, and Z behaviors, but you will not get to a place in which you're transformed genuinely without looking at the person of Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. I want you to look back at that temptation that you had in your mind earlier this morning. Close your eyes.